Well, as I said, it's a joy to be together this morning as uh, Ascension, as Trinitas. It's also a joy to be together this morning as Protestants. Today we're aware that we stand on the shoulders uh, of the saints who have gone before us, men and women who have sought to guard the gospel of God. You've heard Bob say it already, today is Reformation Sunday. Now I know for some of you, and maybe uh, particularly for some of our children, you hear that Reformation Sunday and you don't know exactly what we're talking about. And for those of you who didn't grow up in a tradition such as ours, you adults, you don't know what it is that we're saying. So if you will, allow me to give just a brief history lesson on this Sunday before we open up God's Word together. Today is termed Reformation Sunday because it's the closest day to Reformation Day. Okay, well, there's your explanation, right? No, there's more to it than that. Reformation Day is October 31st, also known as Halloween in our culture. But October 31st of 1517 is the day that we are particularly interested in remembering as Protestants. Because it was that day, just over 500 years ago, that a German professor and monk and priest named Martin Luther posted 95 theses or 95 statements on the door of the church of Wittenberg, Germany. Now, that wasn't, that wasn't vandalism on Martin Luther's part. That was actually a very common thing to do. The church door was a, a community bulletin board of, of sorts. And Luther, loving the church that he was a part of and that he had served for so many years, was seeking to bring about in his church reform to a church that has lost its way, to a church that was deeply struggling with doctrinal and moral corruption. And this, this, this desired reform, this desired reformation was something that had been boiling for years. Way back in the 14th century, guys like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus had stood up for the truth of the Scriptures and for the errors of the church in that day. But in God's providence, it was Luther, it was Luther's statement, it was Luther's story that became the launching pad for the, the political, the ecclesiastical, and the theological movement that we now know as the Protestant Reformation, the protesting of the church, seeking reform in the church. God's providence, that's not what happened. The church ended up splitting, and it would never be the same. This morning, we're going to talk about some of the key themes in that movement, particularly in a couple minutes, but we're going to do so around what is, I believe, the heartbeat of the Reformation, and that is the glory of God, solely Deo Gloria, the Latin phrase for to God be the glory. See, the Reformers wouldn't have wanted us on a Lord's Day morning to talk about them 
They wouldn't want us to simply give a, a, a history lesson of all that they went through. They would have wanted us to proclaim the incomparable greatness of God in all things. And so that's what we're going to seek to do this morning because it was the loss of that in the 16th century that resulted in so much error. It was the reclaiming of that which led back to a salvation that was centered in God and in God alone. And so for a few minutes today, we're going to take a sip from the ocean and meditate on the glory of God in order that we might walk out of here with a big God in our minds, a big God who doesn't fit in our minds. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 11. We could literally spend weeks here in these verses. Hopefully, we'll spend just enough time this morning to stir our hearts afresh concerning our great God. If you have your Bible, turn with me. If you don't, you can follow along. It's printed on the insert in your bulletin, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. It's our tradition of ascension as God's Word is being read out of honor and reverence for that Word. I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with us as I read these verses, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. This is God's Word. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in singing the Gloria Patri to the glory of his name? Glory. Please go ahead and be seated. I want to begin with a simple question. What is the most majestic, most glorious thing that you have ever experienced in your life? And how, how did that make you feel? I know we all have stories of standing, of sitting, of being in awe. For me, it was the summer of 1991. I had just finished my junior year of high school, and I was living in the concrete confines of suburban New Jersey, and my family was going on vacation. It was the first time I'd ever been on a plane. 
It's the first time I'd ever been to the West Coast because we were visiting friends on Whidbey Island. And I didn't know what to expect. I don't have a whole lot of memories from that vacation, but one thing I do remember. I remember Deception Pass. Never had I, in my East Coast childhood, seen such dramatic beauty. The cliffs, the expanse, the evergreens hovering above the churning blue water, the the clean air filling my nostrils, it all invaded my senses and I was overcome. I remember sitting on that large rock on the island that, that that bridges the two expanses of that bridge and just being quiet and soaking it all in. It was, it was glorious. It was a taste. It was just a taste of the glory of God. The psalmist said the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And that word glory, that's not a word that we use a whole lot in our day. And thankfully, it's a word that's not, ne- that's not been emptied of all its oomph, of all its power. Like the word awesome. Awesome has just lost all of its oomph. But glory still has some of that weight. But what exactly is the glory of God? What are we saying when we talk about the glory of God? Well, it's truly an inexhaustible subject as the Apostle Paul writes here. But let me just give a brief definition from one theologian. The glory of God is the radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of His manifold, that means many kids, perfections. The glory of God is the radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of His manifold perfections. Brothers and sisters, this is what drove the Reformers. This is what we need. This is, in fact, our greatest need. I want to read a quote to you from A.W. Tozer. I've read this quote to the people of APC before. It's from Tozer's preface from his book, the knowledge of the holy, written way back in 1961. I say way back, sorry. Uh, His words still apply today. Listen, the message of this book, he says, is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has not done deliberately, but little by little, without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes the situation all the more tragic." This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. We've lost our spirit of worship, our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can experience or appreciate life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean nothing next to the self-confident 
bustling worshiper. Romans 11 is the remedy for this move, for this trajectory. And so, three exhortations I want us to think about briefly for just a few minutes. The first one is this. Three things that we as a church need to recover. We need to wonder and worship at the mysterious glory of God. We need to wonder and worship the mysterious glory of God. Now you're saying, wait a second. Wonder, worship about something that's, that's a mystery, that's something I can't see, that's something I can't fully know, but that's exactly where the Apostle Paul begins. In this letter to the church at Rome, he's just spent a considerable amount of time expounding this rich theology. Those of you who know Romans, who have read Romans, know this. The sinful condition of our hearts and God's judgment has been chapters 1 through 3. The righteousness that God has provided in Christ apart from the works of the law has been chapters 4 through 7. The work of the Holy Spirit in giving us the ability to say no to sin has been chapter 8. Chapters 9 through 11 has been the sovereign grace and the prerogative of God's redemption. The context has been salvation. A salvation that's been broadened to all people not just Jews. And Paul gets to the end of chapter 11 where we find ourselves this morning and he's overcome. He's overwhelmed at the mercy, at the wisdom that is not of this world. At the mystery that he still really can't get his head around. And it's that work that becomes wonder and worship, that theology that becomes doxology, that becomes this declaration of who God is and of what He doesn't know about God and of what He doesn't understand about God, the mystery of God. Now, when we think of the word mystery, we think of darkness. We think of scary, right? Of what we can't see. I remember caving in college with my friends, and what an experience for those of you who have been in a cave of absolute darkness. It's unnerving to not be able to see what lies ahead of you, but the mystery of God's glory isn't darkness. It's the exact opposite. It's, it's blazing light. And so don't think about looking into a well and not being able to see the bottom and being scared about what's down there. It's more akin to the experience of someone shining a spotlight in your face and it's so bright that you can't see it. You've got to look away from it. This was Moses' experience as he asked to see the glory of God and what did he have to do? He had to turn away. He had to get in the cleft of the rock. This was Isaiah's experience as he looked at the holiness of God and what happened to him? He fell to his knees and he was undone. This was Ezekiel's experience as he tried through his visions that the Lord had given him to understand what he was seeing. And in Ezekiel 1.28 he writes, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when he saw it, I fell on my face. My point is this, brothers and sisters, God's glory is, it's too much. It's too much for us as creatures. His glory is his very essence, and ultimately it's known only to himself. 
The 17th century theologian Edward Lee called this his eternal, excuse me, internal glory. God is glorious according to his own knowledge, love, and delight in himself. Luther called it the hiddenness of God. Wonder and worship the hiddenness of God. Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. This is not just theological musing. This matters. This matters in real life. God is not like us, and that's good. God doesn't supply neat answers to everything in life, and that's okay, Because the mystery of our lives, consumed by the mystery of God's glory, is, ought to be, comfort. That was Job's experience, the Job of the Bible. He questions God after all that he's been gone, after all the the Lord has allowed him to go through, and he he concludes in Job 42, 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So I remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, to wonder at the mystery, at the hiddenness of the glory of God. Paul doesn't understand it all but he worships, and he invites us to do the same. That's the first truth. The second is this, rejoice in God's glory revealed. Rejoice in God's glory revealed. Yeah, we've begun with this internal glory of God, this hidden beyond our reach and beyond our understanding that leads us to worship, but we gather this morning to worship a God who is not shrouded in mystery, but a God who has revealed himself who has shown himself to us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God is glorious in his creating. God is glorious in his sustaining. And God is the end for which all things exist. And all of this he has accomplished without our help, without need for counsel. Colossians 1 underscores this in speaking of the person of Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, their thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things seen and unseen exist for him. And this gives purpose to the universe. This gives purpose to all that we don't even know. And may never know. Right? The billions of stars, the billions of galaxies, of of whatever lies out there in this universe. It's a reminder that it's for Him. We don't have to know it all because it's for Him. It's giving Him glory. But hear this, this is not putting God in in such a lofty place where he belongs, this is not to demean you and I. This is not to demean our existence. 
Because God in his creative power in Genesis 1 makes us the pinnacle of his creation. Psalm 8, he crowns us with glory and honor. And when we're marred in the Garden of Eden, when we mar that glory that God had intended for us, God joined the plan to reclaim us and ultimately our happiness. He joined that plan to his own glory. Isaiah, when speaking of the Lord's refining of his people, says this in Isaiah 48, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you. For my sake, for my own sake I do it. And so the reformers, some 500 years ago, they rejoiced in the glory of God in their recreation, in their salvation. The glory of God made manifest in the saving of souls, revealed in the Scriptures, in the gift of grace received by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. Of course, for those of you who know something about the Reformation, you hear there the five themes of the Reformation. These five solas, sola being the Latin word for only or alone, Reformers didn't champion these things or hand out posters about the five solas, but we later have compiled and thought about these themes and and said, yes, these are glorious truths that the church had abandoned, that it's by grace alone, sola gratia. Salvation is a gift of grace. It's through Christ alone. There's no other mediator needed. It's through faith alone, not by works. It's through Scripture alone. The tradition of the church doesn't reign. The opinions of men don't reign. God's authority is His Word. And then soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And it's these truths that we stand upon. This wonderful revelation of God's glory that we are humbled by. This salvation that strips all boasting away from us. For you, from you, the Lord proclaims, through him are all things, even our salvation. And so we cry with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. Wonder and worship at the hiddenness of God. Rejoice in God's glory revealed. And then finally, as we close, respond by reflecting the glory. Reflecting the glory. To Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. God doesn't need us to make Himself glorious, but we need to turn towards Him because that's where life is found. There's a singer-songwriter, Sarah Groves, who poetically describes this relationship between the creature and the creator. She says, you are the sun, speaking of the Lord, you are the sun shining down on everyone, light of the world giving light to everything I see, beauty so brilliant I can hardly take it in, and everywhere you are is warmth and light. And I, I am the moon, 
With no light of my own, still you have made me to shine. And as I glow in this cold, dark night, I know I can't be a light unless I turn my face to you. And so those who have gone before us, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We exist to declare the beauty and the brilliance of our God. Our salvation is being accomplished by Him so that He might shine brightly. And so our relationships, our marriages, our families, our children, our callings, our free time, our purchases, our priorities, our disappointments, our victories, our suffering, it's all for Him. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we, we serve a big God. Through Jesus, we serve the one true God whose glory is both hidden and revealed. May we with wonder, with thanksgiving, respond and have the grace and the humility to reflect His brightness. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for such a declaration of glory of who You are, of what You've done. Father, forgive us for thinking small thoughts of You. Forgive us for so quickly on Monday morning jettisoning, jettisoning your, your presence in our lives, Your glory intended to shine brightly through us. And give us the grace to fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, this I pray in that great name. Amen.